you are our guest with us online or here, we're glad you're with us. We pray God's blessing on you. If I haven't met you, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here and the guy that usually is here bringing God's Word. We come together to worship on Sundays, and that includes a lot of different elements that God has given us uh, in His Word, ways that we are to worship Him, uh, ways that help us behold Him and enjoy Him and glorify Him, and, and certainly hearing from His Word is an important part of that. You know, our God actually speaks to us. He uh, is not just a distant creator who made all things and then took a nap somewhere, but He is actively involved and He's actively speaking to us through His Word. So He's with us today and He wants to, to help us encounter Him. So that's why we are in His Word. We're in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, going through this, we are in chapter 5 today. And uh, the title of the message is Humbug Worship. You may think, what does that mean? Um, maybe you've heard that word humbug before. I would guess that, that maybe you've had heard it from Ebenezer Scrooge. Anybody? Have you heard that? From, uh, where he says, bah humbug. And maybe you've wondered what it means. It's actually a good word that we don't use. Uh, it fits our passage today. That's why I've chosen the title Humbug Worship. Um, let me give you a definition. Actually, we have a slide there from the Collins Dictionary on humbug. It's, it's, um, if it says uh, one of the descriptions, if you describe someone's language or behavior as humbug, you mean that it's dishonest or insincere. Uh, it also can refer to a person as a humbug who you think is being dishonest or insincere or pretending to be someone they are not. So a fraud, a cheat, a faker, a charlatan, that's a humbug. And, and when something is humbug, it means it's phony. We might just use the word phony or, or false. So when Ebenezer Scrooge says Christmas, bah, humbug, he's saying that's all a bunch of phony stuff I want nothing to do with. That's what he means. And so this, the author, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, has a little bit of Ebenezer Scrooge in him. Uh, for redemptive purposes, to uncover things that are humbug, uh, so that we might be aware of those things and, and avoid them and find instead something better. That's really a lot of what Ecclesiastes is about. It's saying this is humbug, this is humbug. So instead of living for those things, learn to live differently in this age that can be full of humbug things, including humbug worship. Now it's particularly relevant today because this is Palm Sunday. Sunday before Easter Sunday, and we know what went on this week, and the way it started, right? Jesus went into Jerusalem, and people were laying down their cloaks and palm branches and waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, and worshiping Him as He came into the city, but yet only uh, some days later, they, at least some of that crowd, was perhaps shouting, crucify Him, crucify Him. So I think... There was some humbug worship going on on that Palm Sunday. And so this is a relevant passage. Uh, just happens to be in our series, fitting for today, on humbug worship. And of course, the point here is that we might understand what this is and avoid it ourselves. God is not interested in just informing us about history or, or what the word humbug means. He wants to speak to our hearts. So let's pray and ask Him to be here with us to help us to understand and be changed by His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You, Lord, that You don't leave us alone to perhaps live in humbug or false worship. 
you want something better for us, and we thank you for it. And I pray you'd help me, Lord, to, to rightly teach and explain your word. And I pray by your power, Holy Spirit, that we could hear from you. And we would be called to something better than humbug worship. So lead in this time and be glorified through it, Lord. You're good and glorious. And you are the reason that we want to sincerely worship and enjoy you. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Ecclesiastes 5, 1-7. through This passage teaches us that humbug worship is foolish and empty. It's full of self versus the fear of God. It's full of speaking rather than listening. So let us dig in and learn from this. The the preacher here tells us to guard our steps. Guard your steps when you, you go to the house of God. Now, the house of God in his day was the temple. It was this building in Jerusalem that was the the place where God's people uh, under this old covenant came together to worship Him, to to encounter Him and His goodness and glory, to enjoy Him. They did that corporately together. And they would certainly come as individuals as well. It was a a large space, a beautiful space, a, a space for worship. And that worship involved multiple things. It involved sacrifices. There was an altar there, and there were sacrifices that were offered on that altar. Uh, Those sacrifices were offered for things such as to cover sins, atone for sins. God is holy. We are a sinful people, and to encounter Him requires that our sin be dealt with, that there be atonement so that we can come in forgiven and and before this great and glorious God. Sacrifices were also, though, offered for things like thanksgiving and and just consecration, saying, Lord, I, I love You and I want to live for You. Here's this sacrifice to communicate to you how much I love you and how much I want to live for you. The temple was a place to pray. There was lots of space in the courts and so forth to to gather to pray. It was a place to hear instruction as the priests were called to teach the Word of God. It was a place to sing and hear music from musical instruments offered as worship to God regularly throughout the day. It was a, a busy place actually. And to visit it was to be caught up in the worship of God. And so the preacher is telling people to guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, worship in the Old Covenant and worship in the New Covenant uh, is the same thing, uh, different in the New Covenant being really the fulfillment of the Old. Some important things to to see here and to note though that, that this place of worship was a place of 
corporate worship. Sometimes we talk about worship as believers, and, and rightly so, we understand it as our, what we do throughout the week, as we pray, as we work our jobs, jobs and how we work with our gifts and our abilities. That's part of worship, indeed. Um, how we speak to one another, honoring God by, by blessing others with our words. All, there's all sorts of ways we worship throughout the week, but, but worship in the Scripture is also, very importantly, a corporate thing. Coming together with God's people before the Lord. And so that's the context here. That's what the preacher's talking about. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. When you come to this place of corporate worship. And in the New Testament, and under the New Covenant, the fulfillment of the Old, that has special application to us as we gather on Sundays. There is no longer a temple as the place, a, a building actually, as the place we encounter God. The temple now is the people of God as we gather. It's not this building actually. We call this building a church, but it really is just the building. where the church. The people of God gather. But we gather in a building and it serves us well. And to not have a building would be challenging. Um, but what we're doing now actually is, is the same as what the preacher is talking about. So when he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, we can say, well, guard your steps when you come in to worship God on a Sunday morning before, God's, before God as His people. Sunday mornings are very important in our corporate worship. It's not an optional thing. It's not a side thing. It's not a, even a parallel thing to our weekly worship, as important as that weekly worship is, the day-to-day -day worship we're called to. It is a very special thing to gather. And this passage applies to what we're doing just now. Um, actually, this summer, by the way, we're going to take time to go through a series on what we're doing on Sundays. What is Sunday worship about? And so we're going to go through different aspects of that from God's Word and dig into this subject. It's a very important subject. So the preacher says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And so we should hear for ourselves, guard our steps when we come for Sunday worship. Don't just assume that we have it down. Don't just assume that you know, this is really a, a message for somebody else. We tend to do that, don't we? We hear messages like that and we, like this and we think, oh yeah, I know somebody who really could use this message. And that's not the way we're to respond to God's Word. We should be, Lord, help me see. Help me hear. And I would submit to you that, that we need to hear this message. No, no matter how advanced and faithful and biblical your understanding of Sunday worship might be, I would imagine that you have certain preconceived notions about it. Most of those are probably right. But some things that are probably not right, even if they're just subtle, even if they're just starting to maybe influence you, there are certain notions we might have about Sunday worship, so we should guard our steps. We should be aware of what's going on. We should examine ourselves. There can be all different types of notions that, that might be there. There might be just things that we grew up with. We just assume, well, that's what you do on Sundays because that's what I did growing up. Maybe for you, since you've come to faith in Christ, you've always done it a certain way. You've always experienced it a certain way. And, and you just assume, well, that's what it's about. And the preacher's saying, guard your steps when you come to the house of the Lord. Guard your steps. Think about what you're doing. Think about what's going on in your own heart. Consider certain things that might be temptations. And I would submit to you for us that there are things that will be temptations. For example, we could come to Sundays and it could be all about hearing the sermon and how good that sermon was, how well the pastor spoke, what interesting stories he used. 
and we can kind of get things askew in what we're supposed to be doing. There, there's more to it than just that. Certainly, we want to do our best in proclaiming God's Word and teaching God's Word, but I would submit to you that it's not about how good the pastor speaks. It's about something else. We'll see it in the passage here. It could be that we, we think about it in terms of how, how spot on the band, how tight the band was that Sunday. How good the music was. How nice the set was. And I would say that that's certainly important to us. We want to do our best to offer the Lord music that pleases Him and glorifies Him and that draws people in to enjoy and worship Him. But it's more than that. You might have a background that's used to a higher liturgy, to a lot of of responsive readings and things like that and recitation of creeds. And that can have its place, but, but I think it's more than just that. So we're to guard ourselves. We're to evaluate how we come in and what our preconceived notions are and to be aware of it and to be aware of what God calls us to and and what this passage teaches us. And in this passage in particular, the preacher is concerned about those who, who would practice what I'm calling humbug worship. And there are different aspects to this. We see things that are prominent in this paragraph about the humbug worshiper that that the preacher is uh, pointing out. And one of those things is the person is fuller of themselves, it's full of themselves, instead of the fear of God. That they're aware of what they're aware of versus the fear of God. And so the the preacher is pointing out different things and he he speaks of the, the sacrifice of fools. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Isn't that interesting? That that there's a sacrifice that can be brought that's called the sacrifice of fools that actually the preacher is saying is doing evil. That's sobering, isn't it? There's the potential actually in my worship to, to somehow be led astray where I'm actually doing something evil. How can that be? There's some scary things in this passage and we'll work through them. But, but I want you to hear that. I want you to feel that weight, that, that weight of that sobering thought. Now, in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of fools was literally a, a sacrifice that a, a, a foolish person could bring. Uh, one of these sacrifices that we talked about, these different types of sacrifices of, of uh, atonement or thanksgiving or consecration, um, they, would, they would sacrifice different things, bread or sheep, goats, doves, cattle, they, they might bring uh, for these different reasons. And they're to bring their very best, not leftovers, not the second best. They're to bring their very best to the Lord. But the preacher here is probably speaking of of, of sacrifices that are brought without reverence for God, without thought for God, with something else driving things. Where the the person is more aware of themselves and has acted more, more about what they feel and think versus worship of God. It's likely that he's addressing those who are quick to speak and make promises to God and say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and and I I love you, Lord, I'm going to do this and and more aware of how they feel about everything than than actually how good and glorious and worthy God is. Worship can become about us, actually, if we're not careful and how we feel about God. What do we think? Or what our friends think? Or how holy we and spiritually look before others. That's the sacrifice of fools that the preacher is getting at. And it's a scary thought that we can slide into that. And I would submit that all of us can be tempted at least to some degree in this. So I don't think anybody is is free of this. 
Uh, you don't have to be the most extreme example of this to be subject to the temptation. So we're wise to examine ourselves, to think about ways that we can be tempted, to be aware of these temptations and how they can fill our minds. And as I mentioned, things like how good the music is, how much I like this or that style of music. There's nothing wrong with preferring styles of music, by the way. It's not that these things should not be considered at all, but they should not be the forefront of what we're doing. Things like the decor. How good does the building look? Did that hole over there get fixed yet? Or is it still there? There's no hole over there. Don't look. <laughs> Those sorts of things can, can capture our attention. How close to the schedule is the pastor sticking? Oh no, it's getting late. and I know when he's not done by 11.15, that means we're going to go five minutes late and I get to get home to do something really important apparently. Uh, I can't can't manage the five minutes. We do that. I do that too. Um, there's those things that can draw our attention away from, from what we're called to, to do, which is to enjoy God and exalt God and, and see Him in all of His worth and greatness. God is to be the center point of our worship. Beholding Him, honoring Him, enjoying Him, depending on Him, remembering what He has done, reminding each other of what He has promised to do. Responding to Him in faith and thanksgiving and in obedience and celebration. Putting our eyes on Him and letting those other things fall in their place. Certainly they're important to help us, but they're not what it's about. It's about Him. And the fool here has forgotten that. He goes on to say in verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, let your heart be nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. We're going to talk about in a little bit about speaking instead of listening. But then he says this, For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. What does he mean by that? Well, God is omnipresent, so God is everywhere. So he's not saying that God is somehow in heaven and not here. He's not proposing some sort of Gnostic division of the spiritual and physical. He's up there spiritual, we're physical, and, and that's bad. No, the Bible never teaches that. The, the physical is part of God's creation, and it's made good and very good for His glory. That's not what's going on here. It's the idea that God is, is glorious and beyond us. He is near, and He's very near, we know, through Christ, who's taken on flesh, lived as a human, gone through the things we go through, suffered and died and rose again. So He's very near. It's not saying He's not near. But He's also transcendent. He's glorious. He's way more glorious than we can ever imagine. And we can domesticate God if we're not careful and think that He's just like one of us in, in every way. But He is far greater and more glorious than we can imagine. He is the Creator. We are the creations. We are mortal. We have a beginning. He is eternal. We are weak and dependent. He is all-sufficient and all-powerful. We are sinful. He is holy, holy, holy. He is full of great compassion and near to those who call upon Him, but He's no pushover. He's God. He's not some dashboard bobblehead you put on 
your dashboard to look to when times are tough. He's the transcendent Holy One who is in heaven, who made all things and rules over all things, from whom and to whom are all things. This is who He is. He is infinite in His worth, in His goodness, in His greatness. So we are are not to offer the sacrifice of fools to a domesticated God. It says here in verse 4 that He has no pleasure in fools. When When you vow a vow to God, do not delay pain, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's a dangerous thing to think that we can make vows and do things and somehow hoodwink God about our worship. It's dangerous to deceive ourselves about what we're doing and not to live soberly before God who sees our every motive, knows our every thought, knows our every action. Now, it's important to understand that He is endlessly patient and merciful and gracious to those who recognize their foolishness and come to Him for help. So don't mistake that. When it says He has no pleasure in fools, it it doesn't mean that that He is unmerciful. He's amazing and endless in His mercy and grace. If He's given His very Son who has shed His blood for fools like me and all of us in our sin, then we know His patience and mercy is endless. The very Son of God shed His blood to pay for our sins. So that's not what it's saying here. We know He has great mercy. But what's the difference? The fool who realizes they're foolish and runs to Him for mercy finds mercy. And it never ends. But the fool who pretends to worship and puts on a show that they're humble and faithful, yet it's something else that motivates them. He has no patience, no pleasure in that sort of foolishness. So there's sobriety before the Lord. He knows what's going on. So we ought to guard our steps, right? We ought to look at ourselves and consider. And perhaps we need to stop even now and say, Lord, I I realize that I've been a deceiver. Forgive me. I want to be a sincere worshiper. Rescue me. He's a holy God. We should not think that we can get away with hoodwinking Him about our worship. Ananias and Sapphira thought they could. I don't know if you know that story. Acts chapter 5, if you could project that. This is in the early church. There are fantastic things going on in this context. God is manifesting His power in profound ways. There are miracles. There are, there are thousands of people coming to Christ. It's just an amazing time to live. And amidst all these miracles, amidst all this, this manifestation of God's power and goodness and glory, sadly, Ananias and Sapphira thought that they could offer the sacrifice of fools. It says, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Just to pause a second. The lie here is not that he didn't give the whole amount. The lie here is that he said he gave the whole amount 
It was up to him what to give. But he said he gave the whole, and yet he withheld. He lied to God. So continuing verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whatever you sold the land for uh, so much. Tell, sorry, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. That story should make the hair on the back of our necks go up as we recognize that God has no pleasure in the sacrifice of fools, and He sees through things. They thought they could get away with false worship, with a lie here, and deceive others, and, and apparently deceive God. And yet God sees through it all. And the preacher warns us to guard our steps, to recognize this in our worship. To be sober here. And to instead fear God. That God would be what our worship is about. Not impressing other people with our generosity. How we sold this property and now we're giving it all away. Aren't we good and kind and generous like everybody else? God sees through all that. We're instead to fear God. Verse 7, we're told, but God is the one you must fear. Now, this word for fear in the, in the Bible certainly can mean the sort of fear of like I'm afraid for my life fear, but it, it's really not that. It carries with it a lot more. It's not this idea of a phobia, having a God phobia. It means having a deep regard and reverence for who God is. Understanding how holy He is, how powerful He is, how good He is. It's respect. It's reverence. It's recognizing He is in charge of all things, and there's an aspect of, of being afraid of that, but, but we know He's good. And so we have this biblical fear of God. And when we worship, we're called to carry that fear, to live in that fear, in our corporate worship, and really all of life. Psalm 34, I think, captures that, that the sense of that. David is speaking in this psalm about the fear of the Lord. So listen. It says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces never shall be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. See the parallelism there? Taste and see that He's good. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. Those things go together in parallel. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's a great picture of what the fear of the Lord looks like. It's this reverence. It's this dependence. It's looking to Him. It's knowing that He's good and He's merciful and He hears us as we cry out. 
It's choosing to look to Him than, and instead of looking to ourselves or looking to others' opinions of ourselves. We look to Him and depend on Him. And our corporate worship is to, to be centered on that aspect of the fear of the Lord. It needs to be what our Sundays are about. So let me ask you in reflection, how do your expectations and your preparations for Sunday reflect the truth of this passage? What things might tempt you to bring the sacrifice of fools instead of the worship that comes from the fear of the Lord? How do you evaluate your Sunday? When you're you're done here and you're going home and you think that was a really good time, what, what are the things you measure it by? Not to say to be unaware of, of the secondaries, but this passage calls us to, re- to measure it by the fear of the Lord. Did I experience all that the fear of the Lord means in my personal worship? Were the elements arranged in such a way that it helped me focus on His goodness and glory? Did I see Him through the means of grace of corporate worship? Did I get a taste? Did I see once again that God is good? faithful. Those are the metrics that we're aiming for. Those are the metrics I think we're called to. So how about you? What are the things that you use to measure Sunday? How do you prepare in light of that? Hear the Word of God from Ecclesiastes 5. Next, the second aspect of humbug worship is speaking more than listening. The, speaker, the, the preacher says to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And again, throughout this passage, we see that many words uh, lead to foolishness and false worship. Our words should be few, not many. Now, this is not advocating that we just, like the highest form of worship is total silence. That's not what the, the aim is here. The, the few words should be the words that are, are trivial and about ourselves about what we'll do for God and things like that. We should listen and behold God and who He is and what He says more than what we say we would do for God. Having our eyes on Him instead of ourselves. So the preacher mentions vows throughout this passage. That's part of the, 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 the excessive speaking that he's addressing. That there's this tendency, perhaps, in the humbug worshiper to, to make vows. I'll do this. I'll do that to the Lord. Now, vows are a legitimate part of the worship of God, and it's called for and taught in Deuteronomy. The Apostle Paul, we know, took a vow. It says in Acts 18, after this, Paul, he was in Corinth and he was preparing to go to Jerusalem. It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cancria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, probably a Nazarite vow. This was a vow that was taken to express thanksgiving and dedication to the Lord. It's likely that, that when Paul went to Corinth, um, he had been through a lot of hardship, and God spoke to him. He promised to him that there would be much fruit there, that he had many people in that city that he had chosen and who would come to him. And he experienced great fruitfulness and peace in his ministry there. And it's perhaps likely that in that, he made a Nazarite vow, and he said, Lord, I give myself to you in this time in Corinth, according to your promise. Here I am. And he served under that vow. And then when it came time to leave, he, part of the vow was you, you cut your hair off. So he was under a vow, and it was a vow of worship. And uh, usually you would take the hair, and it would be part of a sacrifice you would offer at the temple. 
So it has its place. But the preacher here is addressing those that are quick to make vows and quick to break them. He says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So don't make a vow and then back out of it. Don't make a vow that you have to then come to the messenger, and this was probably the, the presiding priest, to come to that priest and say, you know, that vow I made and recorded last time I was here, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I can't afford to like offer my best cow now because we're kind of going through some tough times and so I, I, it was a mistake, I'm sorry. That, that's, the, that's the scenario. And what this gets at, and we, we're, we're not offering cattle and so forth in our sacrifices, but this idea of being caught up in your own feelings and your own sense of spiritual high instead of being most aware of God. Being caught up in things around you instead of focusing on the Lord Himself. And knowing that you're called to, to trust in Him and give your whole self to Him. And follow through in following Him and depending on Him. And you need His grace. It's, it's, it's a sort of spiritual arrogance that's behind these vows. And it's in a show that's made before others. This is what's going on here. This is what the preacher is getting at. He says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So this idea of dreams, this idea of being caught up in my feelings at the temple. Yeah! And making vows and not being sober and realizing this is about the Lord. Not how I feel right now. Your feelings are important. They have its place. But it's about the Lord. It's about worshiping Him. God is the one we must fear. And in our worship, we're to focus on Him. Let me share with you a brief and somewhat humorous example that might help us uh, bring this truth home. If you could show this video clip. Wow, what an amazing sermon we just heard, church. Amen. We're going to stand this morning. We're going to sing loudly and proudly and focus in on these words and worship the lover of our souls. Let's sing together. Oh my gosh. I love this song. I don't know it. Oh, oh my gosh, you're going to love it.
mountains, rivers, oceans, sand. Those are all lining the road to the promised land. Trust, receive my treasure, the better. Holy Spirit Jesus, King James Bible, Evangelism, be thou thy fair thought, diadem and Ebenezer. It's really good news in, in John 4 that the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now this isn't because He's lost them, He's misplaced them. It's not like He misplaced His car keys. He's trying to find, where did I put those true worshipers? No, He is seeking the worshipers that don't yet exist. He's seeking people. He's coming to bring them new life to change their hearts, to make them worshipers. This is being said to the Samaritan woman. And so the implication is the Father is seeking you, Samaritan woman, to make you a true worshiper. He seeks us. He pursues us. He wants to work in our lives to make us genuine worshipers. He's the one who first acts so that we can then sincerely worship. That's good news. And so as you hear this in Ecclesiastes 5, and perhaps as you're sobered by it, run to Jesus. Run to God who is the one that makes genuine worshipers. Don't rely on yourself to straighten everything up, but look to Him. And how does He do it? How does He make genuine worshipers? He first works in our lives. New life. He gives us eyes to see His grace and His goodness and His glory in the face of Christ. The good news of the Gospel encountered in the power of the Holy Spirit is what makes worshipers. And so Paul says in Ephesians 1, in, in light of this, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace which He blessed us in the beloved. In verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. The truth of the good news of Christ, dying for our sins, rising again, the truth of the, the, the Father's loving us from before time, the truth of the Holy Spirit's action in our lives to create new life is what creates worshipers. These things are all to the praise of His glory. And so Paul can say in Romans 12.1, 
in the New Living Translation, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Because of what He's done for us. Because of His grace in Christ. So the first way to grow in the fear of the Lord is to realize that He is the One who sought me and rescued me and loves me and gave His Son for me to be forgiven and brought into this family to enjoy Him and to exalt Him and to celebrate His grace and goodness. That's where it starts. Secondly, I think we are to measure our Sunday worship to grow in the fear of the Lord and worship. We're to measure our Sunday worship by God. Not by how well the preacher speaks, how good the band sounds, how pristine the building looks, how, how competent the people seem, but how worthy God is. And how we see Him in our worship elements. How the, the different aspects of our worship and all that we do according to Scripture as we worship helps us to believe and be renewed and, and love Him more and obey Him and follow Him to celebrate His goodness. Let our words about ourselves be few, but our thoughts and feelings and words about God and His worth and His goodness be appropriately many. Thirdly, we avoid humbug worship and pursue worship in the fear of God by recognizing that He gives us all gifts to bring to our worship. We don't come as passive observers, but participants who are called to give our all in light of what He's given to us. To bring to Him our gratitude. To forget about ourselves and be caught up with what God deserves. I would submit that one of the greatest hindrances to worship is an inordinate self-consciousness. We're too worried about what others might think instead of what God deserves. We are like Michael, David's wife, who was embarrassed that David would worship so extravagantly. She had her eyes on people instead of God. And so that means for some of us, the application today might be to take some small steps, such as maybe raising your hands in worship for the first time. We don't make a rule that you have to do that, but it's a biblical way to do it. And if you raise your hands at a football game, maybe you ought to be raising your hands in worship of God who is far more worthy than your favorite team. If your eyes are on Him instead of yourself, you'll be freed from that and you'll be able to worship Him appropriately. Maybe for some of us, it just means being more expressive in our singing, clapping, instead of standing like a soldier at attention, having our eyes on the Lord and giving Him our singing and being expressive in that. Maybe it's during the message, feeling freer to say Amen. And yes, I don't mind, by the way, and some of us are very free in that, and I'm happy with that. So I want to encourage you, if that is appropriate, stop worrying about others. Amen. And worship the Lord in how you respond to His Word. For others, it means coming up to, sh to share something at the mic. I understand. I understand the hesitancy. I understand the, the sense of, ah, this isn't very good. Ah, this is just my quiet time. Does anyone want to hear that? Hear this? I, I get that. But, but that is leaning towards humbug worship instead of the fear of God worship. Because the fear of God worship says, Lord, if you want to use this, it's up to you. 
And so I'm going to come and I'm going to share with the host pastor. Let him be the guy that figures out whether it's helpful or not. Not me. So for some of you, the application from this message is to maybe start coming up and sharing. And it could just be something out of Scripture. It could be a prayer. It might be a prophetic impression. And we want to help you understand how to work with that as well. And and if you've been through the class, I encourage you to, to act on that and come up. Get your eyes off yourself and stop overthinking things and put your eyes on the Lord who's worthy of your best attempts. As weak as they may feel at times, He's worthy. You may look at me, perhaps, and think, well, if that's easy for you to say, that's what you do for a living. And I could take time, I don't have time to tell you my story. I didn't get here because somehow I just all of a sudden was competent and able and just stepped up. I'm a natural introvert. I'd rather not be in front of a bunch of people having people look at me for a whole 40 minutes or more. But for me, the way it happened is just how I've been describing. What does it look like to be faithful? What does it look like to take that small step? To feel awkward? To be worried about what others may think? But to know, you know what? This pleases my God. And to take that step. And I would say that if you do that, God will meet you and help you. And maybe for some of you, young men perhaps, you'll end up pastoring. That's how I got here. Ultimately, it's in all this all about the Lord. And that's the main point here as we we prepare a transition. Our worship is about worship. Our Sunday worship is about God and all of His goodness and glory and all of His worth. We're to avoid humbug worship simply because it has no place before such a good and glorious and worthy God. So as we prepare to transition to communion, let me just encourage you to maybe close your eyes and just talk to the Lord. Maybe it's just, Lord, Lord, how can I take a small step? He is so patient and gracious. He wants us to come to Him. Take a minute to come before Him and say, Lord, lead me. I want to respond to You. I pray that as you do that, you'll sense His presence. His worth, His greatness, His grace and mercy. And that will motivate you. Let's take a minute to do that and Pastor Toby will transition us.